0: Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to a new season of On Point. Look, to all our podcast followers and supporters, a big thank you. Uh, We continue to grow and obviously excellent guests. But the great thing I am finding that excellent guests breed even better and more excellent guests. And so today uh, it's my honor, actually, and privilege to have Benedict Rogers along. He's got many, many claims to fame. Benedict, we could take the entire podcast listing your achievements. Um, and the advocacy you do. But Benedict is a human rights activist. He is a journalist. If you read the likes of the Wall Street Journal or follow the BBC, New York Times, he's there. Uh, And most recently, uh, he's published a new, and I would say incredibly influential uh, book. It's called The China Nexus. And we're gonna talk uh, quite a bit about this today, if that's okay, Benedict. It's an amazing book, harrowing at times. Um, This is not to put readers off. the the depth and horror of some of the things which you talk about Uh, but it's also a wonderful book of hope and particularly those those early sections as you talk about your love and time in china and i might just add one thing you and i have something in common which you won't know which is both of us were crook as a dog or sick uh, when we visited the great wall of china Uh, i'm not (laughs) sure that's a great claim to fame benedict it's wonderful to have you on board
1: hello it's a great pleasure and privilege to, to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Well, look, thank you. As I say, you you have an incredible um, role and have played an incredible role uh, in advocating for human rights, um, obviously not just uh, in communist China, uh, but obviously around Myanmar. People are following your social media, uh, Myanmar at the moment, uh, North Korea, the, the issues of religious freedom. And I suppose the first first question is, how did you get into all of this? What has what has inspired you and then driven you so passionately to to speak for this part of the world um, and around particularly human rights, freedom, liberalism, democracy? Well, thank you. I, I guess um, the answer to that question
1: is sort of twofold. Um, firstly, when I was eighteen years old, uh, and I begin the book with with, with this uh, account, um, I I took a year off between uh, high school and university. Uh, and went for six months to teach English uh, in the city of Qingdao on the east coast of China, um, famous for the best beer in China. That that wasn't the reason I went there, but it was a, a nice don't
0: discovery. You, don't tell Kiwis that. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: um, well, and I just had a wonderful time there. I made lots of friends. The people I was teaching were mostly more or less the same age as me or a year or two younger, and I fell in love with, with China, with the people of China. And I always say, as critical as I am of the Chinese Communist Party regime, I'm not at all anti-China, as they would uh, make out. Uh, I'm deeply pro-China in terms of the people and, and the com- country and culture. Uh, so that was a formative experience. Um, and then when I was at university, uh, I guess prior to going, going to university, I was always interested in international affairs, Um and was beginning to develop an interest in democracy, freedom, human rights. But um, a a pivotal moment came when um, a leading uh, parliamentarian and champion of human rights, um, Baroness Cox, uh, came to speak in my um, university and I heard her speak and I was very moved and inspired and um, got involved with the organization that she was uh, associated with at the time, she was a patron, uh, Christian Solidarity Worldwide (CSW), and then one thing led to another. And um, and then when I graduated from university, I went to live in Hong Kong. My first job in life was in Hong Kong, and through being in Hong Kong, I got to know other parts of Asia. I, I became very involved in East Timor, um, uh, in Myanmar, um, and and other places.
0: Which in itself. Incredible, and again for, for listeners to hopefully understand just the depth of work that you've done, Benedict. The number of organisations you're also uh, part of, IPAC, and thank you for the uh, the shout out. And again, in your recent book, The China Nexus, I uh, I enjoyed seeing uh, names of of colleagues there. One of the big things certainly has been your focus on Hong Kong, and obviously there's other um, other countries as you mentioned. But um, to me, as a reader. Uh, and following your work, that was quite a liminal moment when you formed Hong Kong Watch, when the likes of Nathan Law and Joshua and others, and now of course we've got us at forty-three democracy um, advocates, including the Cardinal. Cardinals in uh, being dragged before the courts. But could you, if you're comfortable, to talk through some sort of those catalyst moments for you in Hong Kong? From what was, well, I've only visited there once, I must confess, but I found it a wonderful, vibrant uh, city. I've had family there. Uh, and now, I'd say, for me, it's a shadow of its former self, if that. I mean, so, yeah, talk, if you don't mind, talk us through the Hong Kong watch and those those liminal and catalytic moments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I lived in Hong Kong from uh, 1997 to 2002, the first five years after the handover. And during those years, uh, uh, Beijing did, uh, by and large, keep its promise to Uh, uphold uh, what was known as one country, two systems, uh, a high degree of autonomy for Hong Kong, uh, basic freedoms, press freedom and freedom to protest and and so on, all all intact. Um, And uh, those were promises made under an international treaty with the UK, uh, the Sino-British Joint Declaration. And so when I left in 2002, I was pretty hopeful that uh, the outlook for Hong Kong was was positive. I, I did see some small early warning signs of potential problems, but they were, they were by comparison with what's happened today, uh, minor and, and, and subtle. And so um, from the time I left in 2002 uh, until the umbrella movement in 2014, uh, I was not really involved in Hong Kong. I, I did go back and visit a number of times, but politically uh, my focus was on other parts of, of Asia. And then when I saw the Umbrella Movement happen in 2014, um, the most significant protests uh, up to that point, um, uh, calling for universal suffrage and, and democracy, uh, I and I was quite shocked at the time how few people in the UK at least were speaking out about this. So I felt a real obligation having lived there to uh, do what I could to, to speak out and advocate. So I started just by writing opinion pieces and talking to members of parliament that I knew through the course of uh, my other human rights work. Uh, I, I hosted a number of Hong Kong dissidents. Joshua Wong, who's now in prison, came to London, and I helped arrange meetings for him. Uh, Nathan Law, who's now in exile, uh, similarly. Um, and But then by 2017, um, the situation in Hong Kong had got worse and worse, um, and uh, I was realizing that it was unsustainable for me to be doing this as a, just one individual person in my spare time. I thought we really need a, an organization to, to do this. And so I came together with others. Um, we decided to start Hong Kong watch. It was given a, a bit of a, uh, unexpected, uh, boost to its profile, uh, because in October, 2017, I, uh, traveled to Hong Kong with the intention of meeting people and getting an update on the situation in preparation for launching the organization. And unfortunately, the authorities in Beijing found out I was planning to come and I was denied entry very publicly. And uh, I was probably the first, there've been others since me, but I was probably the first foreigner, certainly Westerner, to to be uh, denied entry. Um, but most importantly, in terms of the situation in hong kong uh what's happened since then um has just been uh, appalling um we could see the kind of creeping erosion of hong kong's freedoms uh since 2014 and that's why we started hong kong watch um, but it was only really since 2019 when uh, there was another uh, set of major protests uh vast majority of the protests were entirely peaceful uh, but there was uh, appalling police brutality a- against the protesters. Uh, and then the national security law, incredibly draconian law, was imposed on Hong Kong um, in 2020. And since then, essentially, all of Hong Kong's freedoms have been torn up. Um, all of, uh, Almost all of Hong Kong's leading pro-democracy activists are either in prison uh, or in exile or... Um, in Hong Kong but keeping their heads down so basically the pro-democracy movement has been for now uh, silenced and, and Hong Kong has gone from being one of the most open cities in
0: Asia effectively to being a, a police state. Which I find, um, I was going to say shocking which is, is true, I, I find it deeply sad and I'm someone who doesn't have that depth of connection uh, as you and many um, others do. I see the name Jimmy Lai uh, behind you on the book. I mean, it's just so many of these names. And in fact, I think one of the first times your name crossed my uh, radar was when you were uh, barred at the airport. It was a uh, probably not a great or pleasant experience for you, but the stink that followed, that the, um, the, the kickback actually really highlighted what was happening in, in Hong Kong. But I mean, what's I might start with a statement and a question, see down here New Zealand's aware of what's happening in Hong Kong or New Zealanders, Um, but there doesn't seem to be the depth of concern that that I would expect, I mean I've written about this, I've spoken about it, a democracy, a vibrant healthy democracy, press freedom, rule of law, gone, crushed, Uh, and yet certainly in this part of the world a lot of people just, oh well that's just what happens, Um, have you observed that in other countries an apathy or a, a lack of understanding of just what's happened? Or is it just New Zealanders? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think I would say there is the danger of that
1: starting to happen because of um, other crises in, in the world. You know, obviously, Ukraine is so much uh, a focus uh, right now and quite understandably so. But there is a danger, therefore, that people move on uh, and, and forget Hong Kong, but at the time when um, the uh, protests in 2019 and the national security law in 2020, I would say in the UK and in Canada and the United States, uh, there was probably a. Uh, I think there was a, a quite a high level of attention, both politically and in terms of the media and even the general public. I mean, uh, not everybody, but but there was a quite a level of awareness. Um, Uh, and, but I think the thing that concerns me is that, um, with the exception of the United States, uh, most democratic governments have not really taken the, the kind of action in response to what's happened that I think they should have done. Uh, To be fair, the UK and, and Canada, um, uh, and to some extent Australia, uh, have introduced what we call lifeboat schemes to help Hong Kongers who need to get out. Um, and the UK, uh, uh, in in particular, introduced the British National Overseas scheme that is um, went beyond what I was expecting they would do. Um, so I give them credit for that. But but no country, for example, has imposed sanctions uh, uh, apart from the United States uh, on the regime in China. For even though they've basically torn up and and entirely broken uh, an international treaty.
0: Look, I I agree. I remember. Granted, it was in 2020, um, myself as the chair of New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, Tom Tugendart, who you will uh, know, um, he, he got in touch with myself, uh, Michael Levitt, who's the Canadian chair, um, and David Fawcett from Australia. So the four chairs of Foreign Affairs Committee wrote um, a letter to the UN condemning what was happening uh, and why I mentioned that uh, was New Zealand media, bless them, uh, uh, didn't focus on the substance of the letter or what was happening in Hong Kong. Uh, it was questioning the process of whether the chairs of committees should have um, any say uh, and whether or not this could affect New Zealand's uh, trade. Now, the latter says me to you, Benedict, is a, it's a fair question, but it's always stuck with me, which is why I share it, that, again, here was a, a vibrant democratic city having the life throttled out of it. I remember at the time that, for me, they were effectively troops, but, you know, probably Chinese police on the... The border building up. Obviously, Mm. they were going to cross uh, and finish the city off in that way. But everyone just sort of chose to turn a a blind eye. And I, again, it's probably looking as much for guidance for someone who's much more. It it makes me sad and angry actually because Mm. I think democracy matters everywhere, not Mm. just in Hong Kong. Uh,
1: Absolutely, I, I, I hundred percent agree. And and I think that um, you know there are there are countries. in the world that have never had democracy uh, and that have been repressed for a long time. And we rightly, we should speak out for them and and, uh, continue to do so. But when a a place um, uh, is actually a a free uh, open city and and then that freedom is taken away from it, um, I think that actually poses in the long term a threat to to our own freedoms. And if there are no consequences for what the regime in China has done to Hong Kong, uh, it just emboldens uh, Beijing. Uh, I think we've seen increased uh, aggression, uh, certainly rhetorically, but also in in various maneuvers from Beijing towards uh, Taiwan. I, I'm, it's it's a hypothetical question, uh, but one wonders whether if we'd met what they've done in Hong Kong more robustly, whether uh, they would have uh, increased the pressure on, on on Taiwan. So, and if we if we don't respond now. Um, Sooner or later, you know, our own freedoms will be uh, at risk as well.
0: It very much parallels much of my own thinking in this uh, space. Uh, and the, those pushbacks are, are needed. And um, I mean, Taiwan's a massive topic in itself. Um, mm-hmm. won't surprise you engage with the, the Taiwanese um, often. But, you know, one of the great warnings in, in my um, head is I found with autocratic or totalitarian rulers, when they say they're going to do something, they do. Mm. Uh, we can think about the 30s, of course, as in the 1930s. We think of Putin just over a year ago saying what he was going to do in Ukraine, but many in the West, oh, no, it'll never happen. Mm. And now we have um, the Chinese or the CCP president, Xi, uh, only months ago, uh, basically saying they'll take Taiwan back. And, again, I, I think the word I've, is in my head today still seems to be, certainly in New Zealand, Um an apathy it couldn't happen let's just keep let's just keep trading mm. um broadening out of that you actually mentioned well very quickly you talked about the lifeboat uh, schemes i think that's great credit to those countries like canada and the uk who set it up but can i just say a thank you here um your work's impacted here in new zealand uh, as we were talking briefly and privately um earlier uh you know the hong kong watch uh, Certainly, draw to drew to my attention uh, and others, an IPAC uh, Hong Kongers who needed assistance uh, here, and mm. uh, that's been given, and they're now safe safe in New Zealand. Also, through your work, uh, through Johnny and Sam and others, you've written excellent reports on um, ESG mm. uh, and where particularly Western pension funds are involved. And uh, just to put it on record, while you're um, here and to hear it, because again, it's your work, um, we we're able to put. Uh, pressure on the New Zealand Superfund to drop uh, a number of uh, investments in Chinese companies that were involved uh, with the persecution, the continued persecution of the Uyghurs. The job's not fully done, but do you take the time, if you will, to pat yourself on the back, not to rest, but to realise just the enormity and the amazing work that you've actually achieved so far? Is that something you're able to do or is this just you've got to keep going? well f- firstly,
1: thank you very much for for that encouragement um and yeah, I mean I think actually in any um struggle or movement um it is important to to um uh, recognize and be thankful for successes uh, and because if we don't uh, notice them and we just keep keep going then um uh you know that's difficult to sustain so so um, it's really helpful and really encouraging to know um, the steps that ha- have been taken in, in New Zealand. It's very encouraging to know that our work has um, contributed to that. And certainly we we, w- we won't rest, but um, but we appreciate the encouragement and it's good to know that it, it can make a difference.
0: Yeah, well, I certainly found in the human rights space that uh, there's, there's, as you know better than I, there's never a shortage of of need and need. Um, uh, Easy to get overwhelmed. So, um, as you continue the good fight, uh, to know that it, it's been effective too. Still touching on Hong Kong, but it may also apply to Myanmar and stuff. Um, in terms of how the, the diaspora communities um, are finding their freedoms in the likes of the UK, and why I'm saying this is with New Zealand, if, um, if you were to come and join me at the various uh, protests for Hong Kong, the anniversary dates or we have here in New Zealand uh, the anniversary obviously of Tiananmen Square. We have uh, Kiwi Hong Kongers, uh, Kiwi Chinese who are still exceptionally afraid. One of the things I've been struck as I attend the protest is I'm there with this ugly mug uh, but most of my Kiwi Hong Kong friends are wearing masks, hoodies, dark glasses. and We are clearly being observed in our own country, the CCP Stooges, um, make their presence well known to us in this little democracy. Is that something that continues in the UK? Are there lessons we should be taking from this? Because we're meant to be a free and open country. But from what I've described in my own home, my own home city, uh, people are afraid of this great communist behemoth. Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, that's definitely an issue uh, here in the UK. And and, and I hear about it uh, from colleagues and, and friends in In Canada and and elsewhere. Um, I mean, here in the UK, I think uh, when you go to protests, uh, Hong Kongers here do regularly organize uh, quite large protests. Uh, It's a mixture. Some people now have stopped wearing uh, masks and and hiding their identity, but there are plenty of people who still do Um, for primarily two reasons, either because they have family uh, back home in H- Hong Kong, and they don't want repercussions for them, or because possibly they might at some point go back to Hong Kong to visit family, not not to stay, but but to visit, and they are afraid of um, uh, what could happen to them if they've been photographed at a protest uh, uh, here. Um, and then, even more seriously, uh, you know, there have been, thankfully, not too many, but it's it's still a, a, a too important to ignore. Um, Incidents of of Hong Kong activists uh, being threatened um, uh, a year or so ago. There was an incident of of uh, violence um, in Chinatown. Um, uh, two two contrasting protests that that became violent, and then most significant. I'm uh, I i do not know if you followed it, but the appalling incident um, it last uh, late last year at the Chinese consulate in Manchester, where uh, a group of Hong Kongers were. Uh, holding a totally peaceful protest outside the consulate. And the consul general himself and several of his colleagues uh, came out from the gates of the consulate, uh, tore down the banners and placards of the protesters, um, beat up several uh, protesters, and then actually dragged one young man uh, physically through the gates of the consulate. So he was on consulate uh, territory and continued to to beat him uh, and... um, uh, and and injured injured him uh, very su- severely in fact the consul general was photographed and filmed uh pulling this young man's hair uh while um while while one of his colleagues uh in an incredibly gruesome way was sticking his fingers in his eyes um and i met this young man a couple of days after the incident and he said that he genuinely feared for his life um the british police the manchester police um did in the end intervene and managed to pull him out. And their dilemma, of course, was could they intervene on consular grounds? But in the end, thankfully, they decided to. Uh, and um, and that, so that incident really sent a, a, an appalling uh, message. And I, I worry that the British government didn't react robustly enough. In my view, they should have declared the consul general and his colleagues persona non grata and, and kicked them out immediately. Instead, they sort of hid behind the idea of a police investigation, and then the Chinese withdrew the, their diplomats. And so they have now gone, but they should have been
0: um, thrown out rather than leaving <laughs> their own accord. Oh, I'm with you. I, I watched it with um, horror. My, my morning routine includes um, reading through the BBC and other British papers. So when that was breaking, it was just Horrifying, and if I might, I kudos to the Manchester police for for going in and wow. pulling them out. As you say, it was just horrifying. It's not not the same level, but during the Hong Kong protests here on one of our university campuses, uh, pro-CCP um, you know, Chinese New Zealanders uh, assaulted quite brutally uh, a couple of Hong Kongers. And why I mention that and link it to what happened in Manchester is all these. It is a question, believe it or not, it, all these actions are happening, not just in China, as um, you, Tom, Tugendhat, and others have said, you know, the first victims of an all authoritarian regime are their own people, but we can we can see the horrendous things happening in China. We see the democracy throttled in Hong Kong, the threats on Taiwan, but we see it on our home soil. Mm. Um, we have foreign interference here. Um, the attacks, as I mentioned, you had them in Manchester, the protests, but it doesn't seem that we, as society, seem to respond proportionately. We should be horrified. Mm. Uh, do you? Well, do you agree with that? And why do you think, if you do agree, well, why is it that the likes of New Zealand, or even perhaps the UK and others, aren't more strongly pushing back? Are we? Are we afraid? Are we unsure? Are we apathetic? Um, what, I just it, it confuses me, Benedict, that New Zealanders. <laughs> and others in the democratic world are not shouting from the rooftops of what's happening.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, I think um, speaking from the perspective of being in the UK um, and also observing Canada and the US, I I think things are starting to change uh, um, to a degree. People are waking up and there was the... um, Incident about a year ago where our intelligence agencies actually publicized the fact that uh, one individual, Christine Lee, who had access to parliament, she, she had high level uh, contact with people in, in all the political parties uh, and that she turns out to actually be a a, a Chinese spy. Um, and the fact that, you know, the intelligence agencies don't normally go public with something. So the fact that they did was a sign of how, how seriously they were taking it. Um I've had my own um I mean nothing by comparison with uh, uh the Manchester incident or or what Hong Kongers have, have faced, um, but but I've had uh, threatening letters sent to my home address, uh, even to my, my neighbors and my mother. Now thankfully my mother is uh, uh <laughs> is very um uh sort of experienced about life and, and quite relaxed and uh uh, the first letter. She, that- she believed
0: your side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> she did. She did.
1: Well, what, what, she got one letter, t- uh, basically, effectively telling her to to tell her son to to shut up. And uh, her response was to laugh and and to say she'd given up many years ago trying to <laughs> to tell me to shut up. Um, but I reported these letters to um, uh, to the Foreign Office, to the police, um, and they took it fairly seriously. Although, of course, because they were anonymous, it was very difficult to track where they were coming from um, but but i agree with you that we we for for too long we haven't taken uh, this seriously enough and even now i i sometimes feel it's two steps forward and one step back we we think we're making progress in terms of our governments taking this more seriously um, but then just uh in the last 24 hours um the news has emerged that the governor of xinjiang where uh it's increasingly recognized a, a genocide of the Uyghurs is taking place, is apparently coming to London and will be meeting um, foreign office uh, officials. And not surprisingly, IPAC and, and others have um, have been uh, calling this out in just today. There was an urgent question in Parliament about it. Um, so, yeah, it, I think we still are sending mixed messages uh, on the question of China.
0: I like your analogy of the uh, steps forward and backwards. It, it feels a little bit similar down um, here at times. They get a little bit of a, a win, uh, and then it just sort of slides back. And I suppose it's it's something that myself um, and others on IPAC or others with similar views here in New Zealand are always trying to, um, well, develop further. It's like how to how to make New Zealanders, and of course others in the world, more aware of of what's going on, which is why I think your book, uh, is fantastic and one of the reasons why I wanted you on this podcast. It's my hope that New Zealanders in particular listening to this read you up because, it's as I said at the start, it's quite horrifying, all the things you list, and it's, uh, that's only a tip of an iceberg, but as you uh, shared those personal stories. Um, so I thought I might, if it's okay with you, just turn to, to Myanmar for a moment because um, obviously we have taught a lot about China, but um, I've seen in, in recent uh, weeks in particular uh, you've been speaking very, very strongly about uh, what's happening there. Actually, I better be clear, you speak about it clearly a lot, but recent weeks on your social media. For a lot of New Zealanders, they know there was a, a military hunter um, and a takeover, but it's it's almost off our radars. Would you like to just expound a little bit of what's happening uh, there? Uh, absolutely.
1: Um, so I've been involved with uh, Myanmar uh, for more than 20 years and travelled um more than 50 times uh, to the country, both inside the country and to the border areas. And there was, um, uh, over the last 10 years, there was this, until the coup uh, uh, two years ago, uh, there was this um, fragile uh, opening of the country, some steps towards um, democratization. It was, of course, uh, still very fragile. And and, uh, we we saw the military uh, a few years ago Basically, begin a, a genocide against the Rohingya uh, people. But nevertheless, there was this sense that um, the military had uh, allowed democratic elections, a a, um, a a joint government between Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, democratic civilian uh, party, but still with a pre- heavy uh, involvement of the military in government. But but a sense that Myanmar was beginning to to open a new chapter. And then suddenly all of that is undone uh, on the 1st of February 2021 with the coup. And the thing that's different about this current military regime compared to uh, previous military regimes in the country is that it just seems to be, uh, uh, I mean, it's a difference of just of degrees, but it seems to be even more brutal than uh, the successive military regimes that have ruled the country for more than half a century, um, so the military is—you uh, know—they—they—they they, they killed uh, thousands of people who were peacefully protesting against the coup. Just shot them in the street. Um, but they're also continuing to uh, bombard with with air airstrikes uh, 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 many v- villages, particularly in the ethnic areas. Uh, they've destroyed um, uh, hundreds of of churches. Uh, they've displaced uh, hundreds of thousands of of people. Uh, There are something like um, 13,000 people in jail today in in Myanmar and subjected to uh, horrendous uh, torture. And um, the reason I've been particularly active, uh, I mean, as you say, I'm I'm always engaged with Myanmar, but I've been highlighting it even more, was basically around the the second anniversary of the coup, and, and a sense that it is forgotten. And you know the parallels with Ukraine are uh, are, are not uh, uh, it's not too dissimilar um, the, with the um, I mean the only difference is that the invasion, if you like, has not come from a from another uh, power. It's come from an internal uh, military uh, that that that's overturned a democratically elected government, but uh, it is carrying out similar kinds
0: of atrocities to what we're seeing in Ukraine. I think, sadly, um, yes to that. Uh, Again, says me, the layman, compared to to you. I think it is, unfortunately, uh, down this way, uh, it is forgotten. Um, There were some reports the other day of um, Myanmar uh, military bombing, you know, aerial bombing. Um, Again, sorry I keep using the word horrifying, but it it just is. Uh, Mm. And it perplexes me, probably more as a philosopher than a politician, um, that... There isn't a greater human reaction. And whether you have some insights into this, because certainly in Western liberal democracies down here in New Zealand, we talk, we talk a big game here, Benedict, about human rights. Uh, but what amuses me darkly is it seems more like selfish rights. People are very happy with their human right. But when it comes to other humans, you know, Taiwan threatened the brutality in Myanmar, the you know, suppression of good people. In Hong Kong, I mean the the stories that you share in the China nexus about Chinese uh, citizens in their own countries being uh, disappeared, tortured. Obviously, we haven't even touched Falun Gong and the organ trade. Oh, it's just just horrific. But there seems this. I always struggle to find the words, um, even in my professions, but. Human rights are just that—they're human. There are six plus billion of us. Those rights apply to everyone, and yet so many people just seem obsessed with their own rights and not aggrieved when they are being removed from others. I mean, am I just being a bit pessimistic, or is this something you've observed in your own work?
1: No, I—I I, I think you're—you're you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously there are there are exceptions, and there are. Oh, yes. both. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you're, you're one of them. There many, many good <laughs> people. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well well I'd, I'd say the same to you. I mean I deeply appreciate uh what you've done and 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 what you know there are a number of of um politicians in different countries that that do speak up on these issues and and that's really important. But yeah, I I think um uh the the, the tragedy is that uh you know there was a sense in the uh, 90s um with uh, following the fall of the Soviet Union uh, and then we saw the end of apartheid um And even in China, we saw what seemed to be some, albeit limited, form of relaxation. I mean, when I was in China, and I talk about about it in the book, in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, there was some space for some degree of civil society. Uh, There were Chinese human rights lawyers who were able to uh, take up cases. And of course, it wasn't freedom, but there was a sense that perhaps China was Moving in a in a at least more relaxed direction, and and now suddenly across the world we see you know Xi Jinping absolutely reverting to. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the human rights crisis in China is uh, is heading towards cultural revolution uh, times, just with more sophistication with with technology and and surveillance and so on. Um, uh, the the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, the reversion of of what had seemed to be progress in in Myanmar, um, and and this sense that freedom was on the advance in the in the nineties and first decade of the two thousands. Now it seems freedom and democracy is really on the back foot.
0: i, I tend to agree. Um, always remembers that Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, as the wall yeah. wall came down, the triumph of capitalism and um, yes, liberal democracy. Um, I think as I've grown old and observed the last few uh, decades, that democracy is—says me to you with uh, more experience—is is very fragile and not to be taken for for granted. And I suppose it's one of the aspects I try to bring to New Zealand politics. Uh, if we're not—is learning from all the countries we've talked about to say, look, you know, we hope this never happens here, but we don't have a healthy democracy in New Zealand just by good luck or goodwill. Yeah. It's because we have good systems, rule of law, processes, social cohesion, a whole lot of, of aspects. And I suppose it's a, partly a selfish motivation on my side when I speak up for other countries to say, look, we need to learn from what's happening here to protect what we're doing. Um, on a more positive note, because one of the things that you, and again, I really want to encourage listeners to get a copy of the China Nexus. Um, at the end, as you've gone through and talked about all the um Terrible examples of what's happening across, uh, like I said, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the House Christians, Falun Gong, and so forth. But you have around about 10 ideas that you call, or will put into rather, you put into three clusters um, of what uh, societies like the UK and New Zealand should do. And without giving all the answers, because people should buy your book, um, is Yeah, take us through what you see are those sort of three key clusters for what people can do because I think at times New Zealanders I talk with even some of my political colleagues, it all seems a bit overwhelming Mm. and they don't know where to start. So yeah, if you don't mind, take us through highlights of those three clusters and what we can actively do to try and push back against these forms of tyranny in our world. Absolutely. Um, Well, one of the
1: reasons I wrote that last chapter was I didn't want the, the book just to be a sort of litany of horrors or and I didn't want it to be a sort of hand-wringing exercise of um describing what was wrong without offering some ideas on what we could do and um and so I came up with these uh 10 ideas which I uh, as as you say I won't go through all of them but um but I grouped them into these clusters um the first cluster is is really the 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 idea of um holding uh the regime in China uh, accountable and make and making sure that there are consequences for their their actions. Uh, And so that involves uh, uh, imposing sanctions, um, uh, looking at whether uh, there are any accountability mechanisms that could be used. Um, The the traditional uh, uh, institutions of the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice are uh, pretty much impossible to use because of China's influence and veto power and, and, and so on. But could we could we find other accountability uh, mechanisms? Um, so that's sort of the first cluster. The, the second cluster is around uh, what we can do to help uh, people in China and making the clear distinction between the the people and the regime. And we should be trying to support um, those in China, Hong Kong, uh, and so on. Um, so, for example, uh, finding ways to circumvent the um, what's known as the Great Firewall of China. Um, and get information in. Because I think the more we can uh, get information into people in China and get information out, um, uh, the the greater the chance of of challenging the the regime. Um, But also within that cluster, helping those who need to get out uh, to do so. And so we spoke earlier about the lifeboat scheme for Mm. Hong Kongers, but we should be looking at at how we help Chinese dissidents, Uyghurs, uh, Tibetans who need to get out. And then the last cluster is around um, what more can we do to better defend our own freedoms? Uh, And and that means looking at uh, diversifying our supply chains, reducing uh, our dependency on on China, um, uh, putting in uh, safeguards to protect academic freedom in our universities that are uh, pretty heavily penetrated by uh, the Chinese regime, and a number of other things. So so it's about um, putting pressure on the regime and holding them accountable, helping the people, and protecting our freedoms.
0: Well, I found myself nodding in great agreement. My wife was wondering what was happening to me as I was finishing your last chapter, because it um, it really resonated. And in no particular order, that third cluster, particularly as a politician, um uh, here in New Zealand, of yeah, how do we diversify our trade? Uh, New Zealand has about 30% of its exports uh, to China. We're highly, highly uh, dependent, so we absolutely have to diversify uh, that, as you say, and protecting our, our core uh, freedom. So that absolutely resonated, and I was delighted um, to see your first cluster too around those consequences. One of the great lacks uh, in New Zealand is we don't have Magnitsky legislation. so. Uh, you'll Well, you will know Bill Browder and obviously the, the indomitable Laura Half, uh, mm. formidable and wonderful people that I also work with trying desperately to get such legislation here, not only because of what's happening in the likes of, or for the Uyghurs uh, and China, but when we think Myanmar, obviously what's happened um, in Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, but New Zealand is, is far behind. So it was really heartening um, to see if you will that commonality of purpose or ideas uh, coming forward. Benedict, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for your time. Um, As I said right at the start, uh, your work is inspiring. Um, I'm sorry that we have not yet met in person. Uh, There was that wonderful conference that IPAC had uh, in uh, in Rome uh, two years ago, which I couldn't uh, get to, uh, but I hope our paths cross. But thank you for the advocacy you continue to lead. It inspires many and inspires me. And I just want to say thank you for that. Um, Well, that's actually just a little bit emotional, which seems a bit weird, but um, it's sometimes a hard road. And so it's really inspiring. And I just want to say to to listeners as well, um, get a copy of Benedict's book, The China Nexus. It is worth it is worth the read. In fact, colleagues who are listening, I'll even loan you a copy. Uh, But Benedict, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well thank you so much for all your encouragement for for your time and for everything that you're doing we we need more people like you across parliaments uh, uh, around the world so thank you very much keep up the good work look forward to meeting thank you absolutely